Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build a purpose-driven life and purpose-driven businesses. We're going to talk about mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can do the same. My name is CK Lin. I've been in biomedical engineering, PhD from UCLA. I've been a director for the University of California. I've been a technology executive. I've been an executive coach for founders. And I, I'm on a quest to find out what it takes to create a purpose-driven life. My next guest is the co-founder of Tender Greens with a singular focus of democratizing good food at scale. He grew that brand to 37 locations and $200 million in valuation. He joined Cohere, where he now advises other co-founders to do the same. He also has a unique goal-setting system called the 10-year plan to help others to achieve their dreams as well. Please welcome Eric Oberholzer. That's good. Thank you so much for being here, Eric. Really appreciate you. Let me start off with something simple. How was box breathing for you? Do you do it regularly? How was that experience for you? It was great. It was a good warm-up. For the last 30 years, I've been practicing uh, transcendental meditation. I haven't missed a day of meditation in those 30 years. So I'm a huge advocate of meditation, breathing techniques, any of the tools that optimize our performance. So one of the things that strike me immediately when I interacted with you was your thoughtfulness, was your way of looking at the world, was your, also your presence. So can you share with us a little bit about why you got into transcendental meditation in the first place and how it actually helps you develop that level of presence? Yeah, I started in college. I, I had a full load. I was working full time. I uh, had a few independent research projects on the side. Uh, I was just stressed. And one night I came home fatigued and my roommates were watching all-star wrestling and drinking beer. And I was irritated. And I, I had a great deal of awareness around the fact that I was irritated, not because of what they were doing, really, just because I was depleted and stressed out. And a friend of mine was getting some good results at a Zazen. It wasn't for me, but TM really resonated. I went to the center in Philadelphia, learned to meditate and never stopped. And over the years, like fitness, like good food, like a supportive community, meditation is the most important thing uh, in my daily routine. It, it brings clarity, calm, an ability to navigate a very dynamic world, whether in the business world or the COVID world. And I think I show up as a better human. And it's really informed how I show up as an entrepreneur, as a leader, and as a partner to my wife. From the experiential subjective reality perspective, can you share with us a little bit about the experience of having meditated versus not having meditated? So that way people who, let's say younger CK listening, who couldn't even sit for eight minutes can say, oh, that sounds interesting that I should look for that kind of subjective experience. Can you share with us a little bit of that subjective experience before and after your meditation? Yeah, people call it uh, PMS, uh, pre-meditation syndrome. I, I start to drift, drift, I'm not really paying attention. I might get a little agitated. And afterwards, I'm clear, I'm present, 
I'm calm and fully engaged. That's what others who know me experience uh, from the outside. What I experience internally is an inability to focus, a less of a, an attention span, this drift fatigue, uh, like cognitive fatigue. And then after meditation, I'm clear and I'm ready to go. And it's like starting the day all over again, fresh. Mm. Um, for those who exercise, it's similar to the endorphin high you might get from running or the surge in energy that you get from uh, resistance training. You might walk into the gym tired, not, not wanting to be there, but you force your, your way through it. And once you get your heart rate up and, and, and come out on the other side, you feel much better. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let me echo similar experience on my side as well. For me, whenever I notice any, there's any kind of like neurotic thoughts, that there's just that agitation of the neurosis of the mind, if I can, and then I would actually go out for a, a long, low heart rate run, that tends to exercise or purge this nervous energy out. And then I'll use a TM or jungle tobacco. I don't know if you've ever had it, Hape. Mm -hmm as a way to uh, fine tune some of that nervous energy a little bit even more. So that way I can be in a grounded space and then come from a space of equanimity rather than this agitated nervous energy to try to do something. Yeah. It's a monkey mind, right? Our, our mind is just swirling and in a very cluttered, distracted way. And like with the rhythm of a run, the mantra, guides us through that monkey mind, takes all those thoughts, puts them into a, a, a density bundle that, that brings them down to a quieter state. And like that, we find our equilibrium again. Do you use music when you run? Do you use, so I'll, I'll share mine with you. I'll, I'll listen to cinematic music or some inspirational um, speech. So that yeah. way it helps me get into that mental space even more, it amplifies it even more or in a little faster. Do you use music at all or are you a purist? I, I use music on a run because I, I otherwise find it a little boring uh, on the run, even on a walk sometimes. If it's not a, a walk through a city or, or a forest where there's a lot to look at, I use music or a podcast to, to busy my mind. When I work out in the gym i'm i'm just focused on that and doing sprints and i find devices to be a distraction a little bit mm -mm -mm. any specific kind of music it depends on my mood if i'm stressed out and really trying to run something out it's probably hip-hop if i'm in a good mood and it's a beautiful day in la probably reggae yeah it depends on on my mood and and the uh the intensity with which I, I need to work out. I love it. That's beautiful. Very good, man. So can you share with us a little bit about your thoughtful process? Have you always been this thoughtful or is it cultivated over time? I think it's cultivated over time. I, I started, I, I believe with a sound work ethic was a paper boy at 11. I was always a competitive athlete, so I understand what it means to to train, to practice, to oh, what sport? What sport? Uh, primarily soccer. Soccer was my sport. So, you know, there, those are some of the early lessons. And then 
as I worked my way through kitchens as a chef, you learn new disciplines. There's a lot of suffering in the, in real time with the long-term plan to move up the ranks. And there's a lot of pain and suffering uh, to do that. And you have your PhD. There were a lot of tough years uh, before you achieved that goal. And as an entrepreneur, same thing. There is tons of pain and suffering and worry and stress and you know, it, negative bank accounts before you actually achieve your goal and, and make it. So those disciplines, I think, were built over time. And one of the big influences for me was Chip Connolly. Mm. Um, had a very simple paradigm that he borrowed from Maslow, the Maslow's uh, hierarchy of self-actualization. And I think as I looked at that model for myself, I also weaved it into tender greens, both as a brand and as a, as a paradigm for my chefs and other leaders to follow. So actually, I, I love that you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So for those of you that don't know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is uh, physiology, security, loving connection, and then self-esteem, self-actualization, and self-transcendence. Do you believe that is sequential like that, or is it ever present, all of them are present, and then you just need to navigate within your own internal uh, priority in the moment? What, what yeah. I, I think you're running all of those programs concurrently because without the, fa the foundation, the higher self-actualized stuff goes away, right? If you can't find shelter and safety, then, then it's hard to really uh, imagine anything beyond that. So I think baselines, the, the early foundational stuff is absolute, which is why so many of us have to go through the pain and suffering of building, but hold on to those value systems and, and the, the belief that there are higher states of existence. And that once we earn into that, that place, we're, we're going to do the right thing with, the, with that privilege. And I think it is a privilege. Success is a privilege. Headspace to really think beyond the necessities is a privilege. And, and we owe it to those around us to exercise that privilege for good. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really great. So I, I don't know if you can tell already, I love getting into the esoteric conversations about mm -hmm. purpose and meaning. And I totally get whoever's listening to this. This is a very privileged conversation that we don't have to worry about the base levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and really think about self-actualization, self-transcendence, this type of conversations. Was there a success model or role model that you look up to at that time? Or was it merely you were pulling the thread of, all right, everyone needs to eat. I think chef gives me some mobility freedom. Then I'm just going to keep pulling the thread. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it was more that there were some people that I admired on the West Coast, mostly in San Francisco, both in the wine industry and the culinary space that were doing some amazing things. I was here on the East Coast, but I also had developed this uh, deeper relationship with good food and elevated hospitality. I'd worked at the Four Seasons Hotel throughout college. I see. So you were already in that environment. I was already in that environment, mostly just to make money, not to not to create a career. But what Four Seasons did for me was introduce me to 
to world-class hospitality and to this community of people in food and beverage that I found fascinating, interesting, dynamic, and I enjoyed it more than, I always said, I would rather feed people than listen to the problems. Now, as a chef and as an entrepreneur, my psychology background certainly came into uh, to play. It's important. But my love for food and my natural instinct to communicate through that food with mm-hmm. others. I've often said, as an overholzer, I am not funny. I can't dance. Um, I can't uh, play an instrument. So what I bring to the party is some good food. I like that. So for those of you listening, I want to underline something. Eric over here will have the self-awareness of finding something that he's interested in, that he finds a way to provide value for others, right? Bring the parties of food versus dancing or entertaining others. This is something that he actually said. So he's paying attention to these things as he's choosing what's next. So beautiful. One other thing I, I might add to that is mm-hmm. I knew that I could I could, I could go to law school. I could go to graduate school. I didn't think I could be a world-class lawyer. I didn't think I could be a world-class researcher. I believed that I had the athleticism, (laughs) the talent, the passion to be a world-class chef. And I think recognizing your abilities and your limitations and moving in the direction of where you're going to be the the best versus just good enough. So say more about that because let me contextualize your question a little bit so you can say more about that. Because I'll just use myself as an example. When I jump into something, I didn't understand the difficulties lies ahead. So whatever enthusiasms or the positivities are usually unfounded. (laughs) There's no (laughs) nothing to back it up other than faith, really. In myself in my ability to learn and it's not supported by any means. So I'm curious to know. So was that faith, that optimism, that positivity, uh, true assessment of your own affinity for taste, for food, or was it more just youthful uh, (laughs) positivity? I think it's a blend, right? Um, But I did okay as a chef. I and and I would have when I decided to go into food professionally. I didn't imagine tender greens, and through my journey, I always thought I would be the chef owner of a small fine dining restaurant. That's the path that I put myself on, and then at some point along that journey. I saw the opportunity to bridge the gap between high and low and also looked at some of those who had come before me who were world-class and yet were tied to their stoves, were limited to maybe their one one or two little restaurants and, and that's okay. But I didn't see, I didn't see myself doing that. And instead I believed I could build a brand and a sense, in a sense, much like a, an athlete coming up on retirement, begin to move into broadcasting or coaching or something else because chefs have a shelf life. It's a very tough 
job. You're working nights, weekends, long hours, under stressful conditions for not a lot of money. So if you want to make impact, uh, you have to do something at scale. And if you want to make money, you have to do something that makes good business sense and fills a need beyond your neighborhood. So though I didn't end up where I thought I might have, I, I think I was right in choosing food. It was the right direction for me. I'm grateful for having arrived at that early on. So let me change gear a bit and I'll share this with, with a little bit of, of a caveat. I'm a convert when it comes to food. I'm trained as an engineer, right? So during my younger days, my dream was, what if there's a pill I can just eat it without eating? That was the, you know, <laughs> the idea of Soylent. Like that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. All that it's stuff. My, right? my worst customer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but 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 I had a I had a mindset shift, so I'm getting better at it. With that said, I'm also saying to you, I want to learn this is something that during my younger years, food was just something I had to do because I had to fuel myself. Yeah. But as I get older, we are what we eat. This physical machinery that we have takes fuel. And if I eat shitty fuel, I'm going to perform shitty way. If I treat myself as a, as a F1 high performance machine, I better find something that fuels my mind, body, heart, and spirit in a way that works. So my mindset have shifted, but my skills of eating and food is still on the very beginner level, white belt level. So what would you say to someone like me who want to learn, but really don't have a way to get started? Could you lay it out for me? What are some of the atomic units of skills that I should think about as I want to cultivate my relationship with this thing that's so essential? in keeping me alive and keeping me perform on the highest level. Yeah. Uh, a few things I would say is buy the very best ingredients and keep it simple. What I say is buy the best stuff and don't fuck it up. And the best way not to screw it up is not to overcomplicate it. I think so many of us overcomplicate food and it's really like enduring in a sense that it's a lot of little steps, little techniques, little moves, little decisions that make up a very complex experience in a sense. One thing I would add into your F1 model would be looking outside of your own performance as well and considering what impact your food has on the environment. So your decisions matter. So if you buy a blueberry from Peru, that that's a problem. There's a carbon footprint attached to that. There's a distance traveled that doesn't make any sense for anybody. And you're sponsoring that, that food system. And also there's a dilution of nutrient density and flavor as a result. So look to your local market, um, buy what's best in season, get connected to that, uh, attached to the the, the nuances of changing season. If you go to the Santa Monica farmer's market from week to week, there's magic happening. It's amazing. And the best part of cooking is shopping. And more about that. Why do you say that? There is nothing more joyful to me than uh, walking a great market in any city that I go to. I go to the central market because 
it tells me about that culture. Mm. The way people eat, the way people handle food tells me everything about that, that culture. Can you give me some examples so that way I can look at it through your eyes? I'm going to give you two. There's the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, which you're in LA, right? I'm in Orange County. You're in Orange County. Have you ever been to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market? I used to live right next to it. Okay. Yeah. So you can, on a win, any given Wednesday, you have 25 vendors out there. And depending on the season, you know exactly what's happening in Southern California seasonally. You know what season um, you're in. If it's blasting with, with citrus, then you know it's probably January, February. If you're starting to see strawberries and, and, and asparagus and, and onions, now we're into spring. By the time you get into July, it's bursting with heirloom tomatoes and peppers and, and other things. And then you look around and you have all kinds of people who are a reflection of that community. And in, in the case of Santa Monica, uh, you might have chefs from San Francisco and San Diego coming in and walking in the market. I've seen Thomas Keller walking the market and Wolfgang Puck. And so there's this whole community going on and you get to know your farmer and you get to know the, the people who shop that, that farm stand. So there's a cultural experience uh, to it. If, if a social experience, yeah. Yeah, and if I go to Bangkok, I see what grows around the city and what people are, are, are fighting over uh, and fighting for versus the, the things that people are overlooking. And I can tell whether or not they're importing uh, their goods or if they're growing them in country and local. They're concerned for animals, whether it's a live animals or they're well refrigerated. What's the level of sanitation in, in, in the culture? And there's, it's always fascinating to me. And every country is different. Every town is different. And so many of us have just a, a, a vanilla experience with a supermarket or even now worse, Amazon, where we get our groceries delivered in a box with no connection to culture or where they come from. So that connection to your food and to the people who grow it, I think it's very powerful. Mm. And I encourage you to go to the farmer's market and experience it. It's a weird time now with COVID, obviously. But yeah, you, you have to start with the ingredient. So I want to underline a few things. And also one other thing that you didn't say, you said get the freshest ingredients. You said to pay attention to the potential impact, right? You also say the social aspect of it. So that way I can be familiarized with myself, with what's happening in the community, my relationship with the vendors and potentially also meet other chefs as well. Yeah. Yep. One thing that you didn't say, but I hear it underlining tone here is what is the awareness of my awareness with my food, with different ingredients. And these are all just way different modalities for me to heighten my awareness of, let's say this particular taste, like, oh, how does it make me feel afterwards? And then also, how does it make me feel to buy the blueberry from Peru versus local grown? And how does it make me feel to interact with my vendors and or other shoppers? I, I think that's right. And taking it one step further, it's that curious mind, right? The child's mind, the child's curiosity, the willingness to taste something that you haven't tasted before or to taste something very familiar from a different source. 
that's going to blow your mind. Uh, the other day, I, I, I was given a sample of uh, heirloom cane sugar from Colombia. This is made high up in the mountains from ancient varieties of cane by hand. I'm not a big sugar person, but this, my head exploded. It was like I tasted sugar for the first time. And that is a weekly experience that I come across something that just when I thought I've seen everything, just blows my mind. Mm. And, and when you're following food beyond the commodity market, beyond the, the typical, the industrial food system, you're going to gift yourself with these daily discoveries. And sometimes you're going to wrinkle your nose and say, Ugh, that, that's terrible. I don't like that. And then there's opportunity to follow your culture, to deepen, uh, you know, dig into your heritage and mm. connect or reconnect or rediscover some of those foods that are, are part of your identity, whatever that may be, and begin to build your own, your own shopping list that really is an expression of who you are. So I hear this is the mindset that Eric has. I want to underline a bit here. And Eric, feel free to correct me. The context that you hold is shopping is an adventure. Shopping is potentially an avenue for self-expression. So that way it's really fun for you. If you look at it that way versus just making an errand run to Costco or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not a task. It's, it's a field trip. I appreciate that. Thank you for that mindset shift for me. So I want to segue a bit to other entrepreneurs who is looking at this, especially someone who is looking at food as a possible modalities to express himself. You are very intentional person, the way that you think about things, talk about things, expressing your thoughts. How did you pick your co-founders, your partners, your investors? Because the way you articulated is like, oh, I just met, met up with two other co-founders. I, I struck a deal with this farm. But I'm pretty sure there's a lot of thought behind how you went about uh, picking those particular individuals as your partners so as part of your tribe. Yeah, good question. Picking the right team is key. David and Matt, my two co-founders, we worked together at Shutters on the Beach Matt is a chef, and, and he and I were already buzzing around with ideas. We had this concept that we were working on called Fishbone. Same basic premise uh, as Tender Greens, where we went straight to source and intended to keep it simple. When I came to L.A., you know, there were great sushi restaurants, um, but then there were a lot of fish restaurants that overcomplicated the fish and you lost the magic of, of, of just really fresh fish. And we thought we could bring an East Coast fish concept, but we overcomplicated it in, in development. And then I went off and put together tender grains, partly as a reaction and, and saying, okay, we need to simplify um, and streamline. And when I shared it with Matt, he said, can I join? I said, absolutely. And uh, it, then he and I, took a drive up to Scarborough Farms, who we had a long-standing relationship with. They're, they're up in Oxnard and, and pitched the Tender Greens idea to them with the, the focus on supply chain and saying, we wrote this menu with you in mind. Would you partner with us? Hoping they would write a check. They did. And then we 
we built a trade deal with them also, which was a bit of an innovation. So they gave, it gave us $25,000 worth of product and we converted that to equity. And we did that for four, four restaurants. So they're still an equity partner today. And then David, who also worked at Shutters, and we were friends, but we were also good colleagues. Uh, I shared it with him and he rounded out our team because he was a bit more administrative. So we always referred to him as the company, the nervous nerd who made sure we had money in the bank account, we were insured, and he did all the stuff that we didn't want to do. And and that made for a, a really good balance. So I'm more of the, I, I don't know, let's say the big thinker and, and let's say the emotional chef, not that I go off on a crazy rant, but I, I romance food and, and, uh, I like that. I romance food. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And then, a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then Matt was a bit more of a, a weights and measures chefs. He liked to systematize things. His father was a NASA engineer. So he had that mindset, mm-hmm. um, which took the, in my tendency to change my own recipes. Cause I, I don't like being restricted to every mm. every strawberry is um, different than its own precious mm. identity, and you can't box it in, in into a, in a into a recipe. Mm-hmm. And so that was necessary. And then David was the guy who who really kept us organized administratively. And so we had our farmer and you know the two partners, and then investors. They bought into this idea. Uh, of TYP, this this idea that we would build a California brand to 30 restaurants, and if we were successful, create a liquidity event, but that their money would be with us for, for a decade, and they had to take the long view. And it what it did, it was align everybody around that vision. So I want to pause you for a moment because it's so you're so immersed in it. I want to underline something and ask it some deepening, some follow-up questions. So what you said, long-standing relationship with someone, right? Complementary skills and also the vision that you have as a line, they bought into, they're enrolled into the vision. Yeah. But what you also bypass is this, you could have picked from thousands of people that why did you pick? And then with complementary skills, with long-standing relationships or previous working relationships, what else? That's maybe the intangibles, the how they make you feel, the that you pick with your co-founders. Yeah, we had become friends over uh, the course of a few years working together at Shutters. We had developed an appreciation professionally of one another, and we understood how we work together. There's there's obviously a convenience bit to it. It's why we live in cities like Los Angeles or New York or wherever, uh, because it puts us closer, conveniently closer to those who we might want to collaborate with. We were all the same age and the same stage of life with similar pedigrees. So we were very aligned in terms of skill, point of view, experience, and also life. We had lived enough, but still had a lot of uh, room to fail if, if that happened and, and plenty of energy to suffer in the early years. Got it. Now, I think kitchen may be 
it's a like a metaphoric crucible in itself, right? It's high pressure. You actually get to see how people behave under extremely high stresses, which it may be better than say someone who's thinking about building something not in such a high, highly stressful environment. Would you say that's the case that you actually got to see the quote unquote worst, worst behavior before you decided to be married to them business wise? Yeah, it's living with someone during a pandemic. It's a pretty stressful time or challenging time for anybody. But if as a couple or uh, you can get through that, then it probably points to some level of resilience. And yes, the kitchen environment, the, the restaurant and hotel environment puts us in places where we're likely to sweat and show our worst side. So we had those exposures. Yeah. Since you're an advisor to other founders who want to build conscious food brands, would you recommend them to do something similar of some maybe a simulated environment where they're undergoing extreme stress, like a Spartan race or ayahuasca ceremonies or COVID co-living situation? <laughs> or is there a way to flush that out more perhaps? What would you say to that? I think there probably is. Danny Meyer, um, who later invested in us once said to me, if before you hire someone, and this was in partnership, but this was a C-level uh, hire, he said, can you sit on the bus for eight hours with this person? Are you going to like them? Are you going to be able to talk freely with them? Is this somebody you want to be on a bus with? So to that, and yeah, do you go on a three or four day retreat and see how they are in the mountains or chipping with the dishes or do they make their bed or whatever? I, I think you can learn a lot from somebody on a trip, on a road trip. Mm -mm. I think ayahuasca might be a little bit intense in the early parts. That's David and I did ayahuasca at the end of our journey. Oh, uh, was how was but, um, yeah. How was that? Talk about that a bit. Yeah. He had been doing, you know, the journey work for some time and I had a previous history with hallucinogens, <clears throat> but hadn't done a lot of them and, and had, had never done ayahuasca. And when we did the, the big deal with USHG and ACG, I found myself almost non-emotional about it like this we we had done exactly what we said we were going to do we should have been celebrating and we did but i wasn't really i wasn't feeling it and i knew i should i, I didn't want to miss it and david uh, said maybe it's time for you to do some journey work with me i i uh, i did a session with him in venice and it was exactly what i needed i went through this uh, intense experience of rebirth where I was in the arms of the divine and there's a great soundtrack playing and I was I didn't see her but I felt her and it's just I don't know you if as a child you lost your mother for I don't know, half an hour in the market or, or, or whatever. And, and then you found her and she hugged you and you were relieved that times a thousand is, is the best way I can describe it. It was just intense love. And then there was this message of 
I'm proud of you. You've done well. Now you can rest. And it was like all of the stress, the pressure, the worry, everything, pain that one carries through life, all of that, just a history worth of anxiety, worry, stress was released. And then I went through this sort of rebirthing experience with the send off the message from the divine saying, okay, now you need to go back out and let others know that it'll be okay. And that was, you know, it sort of came out of the journey. I'd say the feeling is, oh, okay, I had taken care of myself. I'm okay. And now I need to look around and see who, who else needs some oxygen. And that sort of informed my work, mm. you know, moving forward. Mm. So it, it was intense and it was exactly what I needed. Because otherwise, left to my own devices, I would have just gone back into task mode, mm-hmm. started building again and, and really missed the magic, missed the opportunity. So I'm grateful for that journey. Mm. I love that. Thank you so much for recounting your, your AI experience. Bring back the Maslow's hierarchy of needs right. as, as a metaphor. Self-actualization is about achieving one's potential and self-transcendence is going even beyond that. So in my, the cusp between focus on the self versus empowering others using whatever capacity, superpower that one may have, to me, that's the beauty of this level of self-transcendence. And to me, ceremony work is allows us to get out of our egoic mind to actually just hover over it and just look to see what's my superpower, what's my past wounds, past trauma, and what do I want to do with it yeah. right in the end? And we can make that choice. Yeah. And if we want to go back to living the way that we lived before, that's totally great. No judgment. If we want to choose something newly, a new purpose, a new identity, that's totally great too. So yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. So with that said, I know that we're kind of jumping a bit. One thing that comes really clear when you speak is the clarity of your purpose, the clarity of your context, your way of being. You said it beautifully when you founded Tender Greens is good food for all, democratizing good food for everyone, right? At, at scale. I think that was the exact phrase that you use, was there a process that you use to get to that level of clarity amongst first and foremost for you, then to the three of you, then to the rest of the, the company and so forth? How did you get to that crystal clarity? I, I think it, it refines itself over time, but you know, what it's what I call the three whys. So there's a Simon Sinek. Uh, why that we all know and that's important. Why does the world need your product or service? There's a timing. Why now? Why is this the moment in time to introduce it or, or to bring it to market? And the most important one is why are you the one who is best equipped to execute? And that's where you are able to dig into your passion, into your superpower, and get beyond idea phase or what I call cocktail performance and into execution. And I'm sorry, wait, back up. Cocktail performance. What do you mean by that? 
it's what Ken uh, calls the 25 million millionaire. It's, it's the guy at the cocktail party who is full of big ideas, but never actually gets anything done. So over a cocktail, big vision of the world, but, but can't seem to, to wake up uh, tomorrow and do it. And then there are those who quietly just get something done. For me, there was a lot of blue water, a, a huge gap between the high end that I had spent so much time and, and the low end that was making America fatter, sicker, and, and more distance from the what I call the magic or, or romance of food. And, and I thought I could bridge that gap by borrowing some of the systems and the efficiency and the relatability of fast food, but informing it with, with slow food and an impact and nutrition and deliciousness. And that was the goal of Tender Greens, to do that and do it at scale profitably. And we're not, no vision is ever perfected in performance, but we did a, a decent job and I think ignited a movement in, in the fast and fine casual space and proved out that you could do good food at scale. Yeah. Just so that when I told my social circle that I'm interviewing you, every single comment is, I love tender greens. <laughs> and then that's actually, I would say something that's really difficult to cultivate. It's not just, I love whatever dish I, I, I eat there to satisfy my, my hunger, but you really help transported this experience to healthy food. So when I think about healthy food, I actually think about tender greens. Mm. It is one of my top restaurants. So I was so excited to be speak, talking to you. Good. Thank you. How did you concretize that vision? Cause you started with a purpose, right? And then, you know, your superpower, which is food, but how do you start to put an architect this, this intangible experience? such that it's solid to you, it's concrete to you. You're like, I want to build this experience this way. These are, a, can you share with us a meta process, how you did that? There's obviously the process of planning and uh, refining the business plan. So you have to articulate it in many forms. Uh, you know, your best shot at budget and finances, team, the recipes, the menu, design of the restaurant, culture and principles at the time and everything matters everything runs through a, a lens that is as crystal clear as you can make it and then i think bezos gets it right by saying every day is day one into each day with that intensity and the openness to learn to adapt to evolve and and get better smarter interrupt real quick let me use maybe a housing project as an example. What you just said, what I'm hearing is this is, Hey, there's doors to be built, frameworks to be constructed, drywalls to put up. We're going to do it all from day one. What I'm asking for is, are there like the priorities? I would think about this as a way to attack it systematically. So if you can share with us, how did you think about it systematically such that you get to the end result of beautiful experience. That would be great. Um, so that can be the, the strategic plan 
-hmm. to get us to TYP, which is a long vision in many chapters. The further you span out, the less specific. And then there's the micro plan, the critical path to get a restaurant open or to win a pitch to an investor. So it depends on what your goal is. There's the big goal, which is TYP in our case. And then there are the micro movements in football. It would be, uh, we just need to get a first down. Right. right. Not looking right, at right, the right. Super Bowl. I, we're just, we're focused on this. Need to, need to get three yards. Right. Um, and here's what we're going to do. It, it depends on what what stage of the game you're in and whether you're you're focused on that play or, or building a dynasty. Maybe let me correct my question a bit. It's really difficult to see something that's 10 years out. I think a lot of people say that's impossible, right? Five years out, maybe a little bit better. One year out is so much easier. So what are some of the meta framework that you have to concretize that vision, even for yourself, the 10 year vision, the five year vision? I think that would be helpful yeah. to understand how you did that. Yeah. Here's how I work with other founders, because I think it's better formed now than back then. We just had sort of an intuition. Maybe we got lucky. Maybe we were had some vision. What I do with founders around this question is first I do what I call the, the founder uh, mind dump. So that's to get to where they are right now. This is a check-in. This is the the pickup point for Uber this is where I'm standing and need to I'll start. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a trainer, that would be the opening diagnostics to see what your mobility is, uh, body fat, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the TYP exercise is tell me what the New York Times article says above the fold about the company you've built and the leader you've become and the impact you've made mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And that becomes this aspirational vision of what you're building. Mm-hmm. And there's not a right or wrong answer, but it, it needs to be achievable, mm-hmm. stretch, but achievable. It needs to be clear. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to build a 30 restaurant California brand, the, the three key markets, four key markets since you're down in, Austin, uh, in, in Orange County, LA-based, San Francisco, Bay Area, San Diego, Orange County. And it would be built on an organic local supply chain. We would stay within the, the growing seasons and we would be chef-led, not just at the top, but in every restaurant, we would have chefs so that we could innovate real time. And we would build a company culture that had all of the elements that we loved coming up through um, the ranks in our previous life, would remove all those things we hated and fold in or add in those things we wished were there and present for us as we were navigating our careers. And a lot of those were, were clearly defined. And then as we found stability, we would make a difference in our communities in meaningful ways. And we would be grounded in a healthy, uh, wellness-supported lifestyle. So our menus would not be, it wouldn't be health food, but it would be inherently healthy and it would support a healthy California lifestyle. 
whatever that means. It wasn't prescriptive, but it was, it was a feeling in the same way that people understand what a Mediterranean diet is. Mm. Um, and we would, yeah, we would create a liquidity event if we were successful for ourselves, our family, and everybody who supported or created value along the journey, including investors. Um, mm. And it was as simple as that. As simple as that. Yeah. So guys, this is the secret of building a, a, a restaurant brand that will eventually get to $200 million plus. Uh, it's not, not simple. It's simple to say, but by really beautiful. Hard to do. Yes, absolutely. What could I follow up with? There's, there's so much more. Um, so I want to underline something. And there's also something else you didn't say that's very clear to me. It's creating last, lasting values that everyone could grow. It's an ecosystem and, and it's led by the chefs and it's in building equity overall with all stakeholders. That's what I also hear in every talk that you have made. So what you articulated is, is it's concrete, it's beautiful, it's embodied. What I'm curious about is this is an inside out approach, right? It's very tempting to do an outside in approach, meaning well, based on the market and historical trends and uh, the comps of other restaurants, we can have a growth trend of this, the, epide the, the multiplier of that, and that's how we're going to do it. So how did you navigate the tension between an inside-out approach? This is what we are committed to do versus an outside-in approach. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. I spoke at the Columbia Business School last night and... Since moving on from Tender Greens, I've helped a lot of MBAs with their restaurant concepts. The business school approach is to look at data, metrics, consumer trends, blah, 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 blah. So really smart people make bad decisions because they're not looking inside. They're not operating from an intuition. They're belief system, uh, a core value system that aligns or connects with a consumer out there. We didn't have any reference points. There wasn't a fast casual sector. There weren't any models aside from some one-off examples for us to replicate. So as chefs and as people who had been in the restaurant business and the food business and the hospitality business for some time, we had a sense of what, what was missing, both in company cultures, in food offerings, in team structuring. Uh, so we took all of the learnings, all the things that um, we learned that were really good, and we, we put them in our toolbox and we brought them with us. We made sure that we never allowed the things that we didn't like into our business and like i said we worked hard to add those things that were missing in our we had these very clear standards professional standards product standards human standards that aligned 100 percent with our ambitions and our vision and we hoped that others would respond to it but honestly, we, we just weren't looking at uh, the press. We didn't care about trends. As a matter of fact, I, to this day, don't like 
trends, because if you're focused on trends, you're to the Gretzky example, you're just fighting in the pit with everybody else. I believe you have to know the industry enough and study culture closely enough to know where the puck's going to go, where, what's the next thing and how can you be part of that? Not so early that you're wrong, but early enough that you're way ahead of the curve. And that comes from intuition, sometimes luck, sometimes timing, but it doesn't come from focus groups and, and, and surveys and all this other bullshit. That's for people operating in the middle, in my view. That's Eric, by the way, I agree with you hundred percent. I've been on the outside in approach. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it because then I didn't have ground. I'm always shifting. I'm always chasing some trends. And, and I, I love the inside out approach because at the end of the day, what's the life that I wanted built? What's the right. company that I'm committed to? However, let me argue for the other side. Some may say, hey, the purpose of the business is to maximize profit. My job as a CEO is to have the highest return for my investors. Therefore, you are setting up arbitrary barriers to achieve the goal of a business. How would you respond to that? Um, That becomes a bigger pressure when you, when you have bigger outside influence. When in music, you always have the band that everybody loves and they're touring the, the local circuit and, and then they start showing up on independent radio or, or whatever. And then they sign with Capitol Records and, and now they're, they're at the festivals. Their music is, starts to soften. It sounds a little bit more washed out. And the, the people who loved them in the beginning begin to fade and, and complain that they sold out. Because now the people who see that band as a business, as a racehorse, are trying to maximize their investment. It's the same thing with Wall Street. It's the same thing oftentimes with private equity, where there is an investment in an idea and a, and a brand and a product, and their job is to make that investment grow. So now the EBITDA, the market share, the growth, all those pressures become real because that's what you've signed up for. Truthfully, that's when I decided to, to, to step aside. As an entrepreneur, I'm, a, I'm an opening pitcher. I'm not a closer. I brought in Danielle Bruno, who is a closer. She's not an entrepreneur, but she's a very good CEO who can navigate the next phase of growth for Tender Greens. And, and she's tough enough to to manage the board but so she's she doesn't have the emotion or the emotional baggage of of a founder who will always put the brand and and the purpose and the vision in front of money but she's not uh, so beholden to let's say the investors that she'll sell out the brand Uh, and that's why i chose her so I, I think there's a stage at which a company grows into that. And you saw that with Starbucks. Starbucks was so innovative and so special and did so many good things. And now I would argue that these drinks that carry 500 calories and are making America fat are doing a disservice. Howard Schultz is still an amazing visionary, 
but he's not in charge anymore. So, and he, he wrote about it. And I think that's part of the evolution, but don't start there. If you're starting a business, start it with, it's going to be at its most precious and special in the beginning. And then you hold on to that magic as long as you can, and you raise it to, to go out on its own. And, and hopefully you've set the standards, set the vision, set the, the code of ethic and culture so that it doesn't collapse under the pressure of growth and finance and profit and all these other things that tend to interfere with the brands that we love. Yeah, in biological terms, unhealthy growth, what do you, what do we call them? We call them tumors or, 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 or malignant growth. We call them cancers. So growth for the sake of growth really is not optimal. And so what I'm looking for is how can we keep an environment for optimal growth? Think about it in terms of ecosystem, think about it more of the biologics rather than arbitrary, like just put more fuel to make this thing grow as fast as possible. I, I like this, the the structure, the idea of a B corporation, because of what it does is it almost, I don't know to say force, but it, it really keeps a business true. Now there's reporting and restrictions and other things, costs involved. We ran Tender Greens as though it were a B Corp. It's not, but I think we certainly would have fallen into that category of conscious brands, big corporations, et cetera. And you can lose that if the wrong pressures have too much voice. I think for a younger organization, if you can create that structure early on so that even if you were to exit or bring on heavy uh, influence from the outside, that's going to distract with numbers, at least you've got that B Corp structure to, to, to sort of hold the, the guardrails. Is there a way that you can reframe this instead of thinking about it, not you, but someone else can say, oh my God, this is such a barrier or, or obligation or, or responsibility is completely quote, quote, not unnecessary. So that's one frame looking at it. Is there a way that you can look at it and say, Hey, in my experience, these are actually assets to do it this way. Is there a way that you can articulate it? Looking at an inside out approach as an asset rather than a liability. It's a hundred percent asset. And the example that I would use in California is in and out burger. It can touch in and out mm. and they've grown over the last 80 years. And they haven't changed a lot. They haven't changed their value system. They haven't changed their product. Many have tried to, to hack their system. I think Chick-fil-A would be a Southern example of that. But they're multi-generational family-owned business. The family does it the way the family believes it should. And they've had family dysfunction and all kinds of things internally. But the brand is protected by this dedication to uphold values of the family. If they franchise or, or they went public, that would be compromised. So I think, what are you building? Are you building a, a business to exit? The risk is you, you give it over to somebody who's not as emotionally attached and may not see the world the same way you do. 
or are you going to build something forever plan? And you just have to know what you're, you're building. We, me, Matt and David knew that we were going to build this to a certain point and then exit to some degree. And we knew the risks of that, but everybody was aligned and I've written about it. You know, I call it a founder's empty nest syndrome because you build this brand uh, to go off and become a, a meaningful adult. And then they do, and maybe they don't have the same political views. They, they're making life decisions different than you would uh, under your household control, but you hope that you, you give them uh, the values and, and the, the the foundation to, to make the right decisions. There's not a right or wrong way. I, I love multi-generational brands, but if you're the first generation, it could be a while before you actually uh, reap the benefits of that. So you have to ask yourself, what are your goals? So as a founder, you have the privilege of deciding what you want to get out of the hard work. So we were very clear about that. So question for you, now you're an advisor to, to others, right? Who, who want to essentially duplicate your success. Oh my God. Tender green is awesome. I love their experience. I love their business case, all that beautiful things. My experience of interfacing with young founders is they just wanted to get to the tactical things, the external facing stuff that we had just talked about. Mm -hmm. What would you say? And then, and then they don't want to do the inside out stuff because for them, it's so long-term it's not tangible right now. It's quote unquote, waste of time. What would you say to them and say, Hey, wait a minute, uh, pause on the tactical things and the menu selections and all these things. That's actually focus on the core of what you stand for. What would you say to those people who just wanted to do the tactical things rather than the value stuff that we, you and I talked about? I would direct them to, to core values and really, I don't want to say, I would corral them into, into a place that's more purpose-centered, values-focused, and, and heartfelt. And right. if, but, but what would you say to them, though? I say, hey, Eric, I wanted to make my first menu. I want to raise capital. I want to put together a deck. Like, these are execution tasky type things. What would you say to someone who just asked those questions to say, Hey, wait a minute, blah, blah, blah. What you stand for core values in this? Yeah, it's, it, it starts with those three whys and then going deeper into it. It's what difference do you want to make? Why should I or anybody else care to support you? Because if you're just designing a business plan or a widget, then go ahead, do that. I'm not interested in working with you. But okay. if, <laughs> I, mean, personally, I, 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 don't, I don't advise people on how to maximize profit solely. I advise people how to uh, build a conscious brand, uh, a brand that has some differentiated quality, some, some halo creation, uh, a moat around it that, that is truly ownable and is not okay. Sweet green is doing this. So we should do this. It's not a me too following the leader thing. 
And then I help them. So if it's around a better supply chain, then I'll help them go from, let's say, natural or organic whenever possible to truly transparent supply chain that is firmly grounded truly in in organic practices. If they want to develop a menu that and a brand that stands for holistic wellness, then we'll find pathways that make sense for holistic wellness. What I mean by that is food that is nutritious and is going to support a healthier uh, lifestyle, a company culture and ethos that promotes human development, not just career development, but sound human development and is firmly grounded in any high EQ and emotional intelligence that there is a, a sense of servant leadership, not just within the organization, but in the community, that the community is better because your business uh, exists in that community. Be a good neighbor. These things that, that I think matter. And by the way, yes, you've got EBITDA that's above 20% and you pay better wages and you're able to deliver a product that is affordable. So there's broader access um, uh, for everybody. So I, I think you can have it all. It's yeah. not easy, but yeah. I, I help guide entrepreneurs along that journey of showing up, up more thoughtfully and doing the work, not just talking about it, because anybody can put together a bullshit mission statement. It's a, it's a pause on that. So let me underline something, then I will ask you about that bullshit mission that you just talked about. I think what you're saying here is, hey, listen, you can do whatever you want. You want to maximize value, extract, exploiting your employees. If that's what you want, go ahead and do that. Not a problem, but you, Eric, are not going to be a part of that, right? If you want to focus around regenerative organic agriculture. What I'm hearing is your path is how to use food slash restaurants as a force for good. That's right. The systematic level. That's what I'm hearing. So if you want to do that, go talk to Eric. That's why you're saying yes. Right. Awesome. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. All right, beautiful. How do you, cause now you're advising, you're investing all these things. So how do you penetrate the bullshit? When someone's giving you bullshit, how do you like, mm, I don't know. I don't think so. What's your bullshit detector test? I'm a bit of a subject matter expert. So I, if it's a restaurant, I walk through their kitchen and I look at their, what the shelves of the walk-in. I will pick up a lemon and look at the sticker. I, I look at their pantry and, and where they're getting their items. I look at the mise en place. And, and very quickly, I know exactly what they're doing. The marketing material, all of that is window dressing, but the, the, the re real details are, are in the back of the house. So you might look at a car and it looks beautiful, but you're going to have to look under the hood. You're going to have to look at the engine. And if it looks like a Ferrari, but there's a lawnmower engine in it, something's wrong. <laughs> That's vivid. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's very vivid. So let's actually bring something that's a little bit more timely. Let's say someone who wants to start something now, who's inspired, who has a mission, who wants to pull on that thread of curiosity. 
What would your advice for them be? Is, is COVID a huge problem or is it a huge opportunity? If you have an existing business that is at risk because of the nature of COVID, then it's a big problem. And in some cases, it is a great operators are not going to survive it. You might have a, a, a beautiful hotel along the water, and if there's a tsunami, there's, you know, there's not much you can do about it. So there are going to be a lot of really talented, great people who lose fortunes, not because of mismanagement, just it is what it is. And it's sad. And I, I feel badly about that. For somebody starting out, I think this is one of the best times to start anything. Starting a business in a crisis, whether it's a war, whether it's a financial meltdown or a pandemic, if you can figure out how to bring us all out of this, you're going to be the big winner coming out of this mess. So I, I think for a young entrepreneur who's able to see the blue water, to, to read the, the play and, and understand or guess where the puck might be going, it's wide open. There's open ice right now. It's very hard because this is unprecedented. In the past, you could say we've been in... That the stock market crashes once a decade. I've been here before. Uh, I'm not going to freak out because I, I know it'll all come back and I, I can navigate. This one's a little tougher, but there are a lot of smart people who are going to pull out of this and it'll take some courage. It'll take some intelligence and, and timing. But the great thing is people have to eat. So in terms of food, you're in a good position to, to do something special. Are there any kind of success cases that you're like, wow, they're, they're, they're reinvention or this new idea or this spinoff are very inspiring for you that has caught your attention? Honestly, I haven't. I think it's too early to, to say. I, I would say there's more success in the opportunists or or those who were just optimized for this. Obviously, the delivery companies, Amazon, Zoom, <laughs> they're, they're thriving. And it was just because they were there. There was a fumble and they were there. There are, are some groups that I'm tracking that I think are adaptive enough that they might have a good positioning to, to take advantage of this. There's a, a mobile ghost kitchen company up in New York that, that I'm following, but it's a little too early to say. I haven't seen any breakout brands or ideas that are like amazing. I think what we have learned is that whatever we were predicting, particularly in, in the area of technology, has just been pushed five years ahead. This, this really accelerated some of the innovations, whether it's frictionless transactions or delivery, food delivery, all of that is now really accelerated. There's no resistance anymore. We're here. Are there any specific technologies that, especially around food, that's caught your attention? So for example, grow your own meat or uh, hydroponics. I know that you talked about it in some of your presentations. Are there any kind of 
promising, disruptive technologies as, oh, wow, we can really use it to undercut food cost or really help organize the logistical problems or whatever, the deliveries or something. Is there anything like that that's caught your attention? I'll start with the one that I, I find most promising and mm -hmm. it's still a little early, but blockchain technology is, I think is really going to, uh, in, in the same way that in the early nineties com came, everybody got excited and then crashed and then quietly, slowly, uh, the real internet, the power of the internet changed our lives. I think it's the same thing with blockchain and crypto was this, it was like .com. A lot of people were making fast money and making great claims, but under that is the blockchain. And whether it's supply chain transparency or, or even political transparency, I think you're going to see a lot more coming out of that in food. Can you give me some example? Cause I'm, I'm not connecting how food is relevant to cryptocurrency or blockchain. Uh, don't think of cryptocurrency, think of the blockchain and mm. um, transparency in, in uh, chain of custody. Mm -hmm. Imagine right now you might go to market and there's tiger shrimp mm -hmm. and nothing about those tiger shrimp. Mm -hmm. um, you just know what the, the marketing and the label and, and maybe the guy behind the counter tell you. And you have to believe them. And then there might be a QR code on that box that links you to every uh, point of transaction along the value chain mm -hmm. and provide a rating system and tell you that uh, those shrimp were harvested in the Philippines in managed mangroves that are adhering to the tenants of agrobiodiversity and mm -hmm. that there is no negative impacts um, from shrimp farming on the ecosystem. And that ecosystem is fully preserved and managed while still serving as a resource for, for shrimp. And you, you might even in the same way that when you go to blue bottle coffee and you have a single origin coffee from a plantation somewhere in Colombia, you might, through that QR code uh, window, know that it came from a very specific part of, let's say, the Philippines, and it was harvested by Boat 39, who is run by, and because Juan is, is managing these mangroves in, in the Philippines in such a way that there's no negative impact on the environment while delivering to your seafood market, shrimp that are delicious, you can essentially tip that fisherman mm. through blockchain uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the visa supported transaction system. You mm -hmm. can tip that person who you think is really doing a great job of protecting the environment while still delivering shrimp to you. Mm. Um, I like that. that becomes yeah. very powerful where, and this is, this gets back to our, conversation around Santa Monica uh, farmer's market. So if you were to go to Whole Foods 
uh, or even if you had Amazon deliver to you at home and you could flash the, the, the QR code on your, your box of shrimp in this case and make it through that connection to this fisherman who, who might even come up with a profile on your, your phone. Wow, this was harvested three weeks ago in the Philippines or maybe it was flown in fresh and it was harvested two days ago. And you can see the mangroves and they're, they're vibrant, beautiful and blah, blah, blah. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave them a tip the same way I do the barista. Alternatively, you might look at a container that has palm oil in it. And what you'll find is that palm oil is coming from forests in Indonesia that have been decimated. And you can see the destruction that you are now supporting by buying that product with palm oil. And that may cause you now, because you have absolute transparency on every ingredient on that container. Wait a second. If I'm sponsoring this industry that's burning down forests, do I want to buy this? So the question I have is this incentivize the consumers who want to be more aware and educated. This benefits the, the individual farmers, producers, fishermen, right? Cause they have the opportunity to be tipped or pay or compensated yeah. in some way but it doesn't actually incentivize the system, right? The wholesaler, the whole foods and all these things, because for them, what do they get from providing transparency of the entire supply chain? So if you're part of the blockchain and there's full adoption, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the consumer uh, gets to the point where they expect transparency mm -hmm. and, and somebody along the, the value chain is remaining opaque. The consumer is going to instantly say, if you're not open and transparent in a world that demands it now, I'm not going to support you. If mm -hmm. you can, and, and we saw that in Prop 30, uh, whatever it was, as a GMO label. So uh, there, was, uh, there was an initiative in, in California around uh, GMO labeling that uh, if genetically modified organisms were being used in an ingredient, you had to say that this was genetically modified. There was millions and millions of dollars put into to defeating that. It was defeated, but what it did was create um, awareness. And the way consumers reacted was, if you're not going to put it on your labels, big food, then we're gonna demand that others do. And we're gonna pay a premium for a non-GMO certified salad oil or corn or whatever. Now you go into the supermarket and gluten-free, non-GMO, organic, you see, it has to be on there. If you're not, it, it's like the eighties when it was no MSG, right? So it's, it was the same thing with cage-free eggs. The consumer dictates the policies that will follow. And if you can get consumers to the point where they're demanding transparency or they're demanding a certain quality, either companies will go along with that and accommodate them or they'll fail because uh, they won't be supported by the consumer. I like that. So are there any kind of leading movement that you can point us to? Because this have more transparency, empowers the individuals as well, all the way up, all the way down. So are there any movements that you can point us to? We just published a, a, a paper called Brown, uh, Green, Blue. And uh, it's the uh, 10 principles of agrobiodiversity. We are 
testing this right now in pilot with three crops out of West Africa, uh, minor millet out of India, and amaranth out of uh, Mexico. And then using blockchain, creating a supply chain that's absolutely transparent. So that's the pilot, and that's in process right now. There are, there's been some work in, in seafood. There was a, a, a token uh, called Fishcoin that was gaining some traction. And oh, by the way, how are these funded? Are these nonprofits? Are these funded by investors? And, and yet they're still B, B Corp, so then they can stay neutral? Like how yeah. are they? So the, so the thing that I'm doing is it was called the FACT Accelerator, the Agrobiodiversity Accelerator. It came out of a cohort that was born out of Google Food Labs, which is a group that Google helps facilitate. And then this group uh, worked on the outside of, of the Google ecosystem. Uh, so it was a crowdsourced effort to, to come up with these, these principles and then a toolkit so it's it's some corporate Denon and Unilever, Mars, who are very active, obviously Google, and and then a lot of NGOs and and others and people like me who join it to work through the details and then uh, put it into action in the marketplace. Thank you for that. I know that you really want to talk about uh, regenerative organic. I know we touch upon it. Is there anything specific that you want to talk about? Re regenerative organic agriculture? I, I think what's important, and you'll start to hear more and more about it. So everybody knows organic certification. Organics have been around a long time, but regenerative organic gets uh, deeper into soil health and ecosystem uh, health, whereas organic traditionally was just removing the use of chemical inputs, so whether it was uh, nutrients or pesticides and herbicides and, and what have you. The regenerative organic really gets into what is closest to biodynamics and what farming was many years ago. And I think the, the key word in this is regenerative. So many people have talked about sustainability for so long. And to sustain is just to hold the line. We've passed that. And now we have to give back, we have to rebuild, we have to regenerate, we have to develop. And, and, re, and through agriculture, you can rebuild the health of, of soil, which ultimately informs the health of, of plants and the broader ecosystem. And whether it's carbon sequestration or biodiversity in our ecosystems, uh, so that the, the pollinators are thriving, the the wild species are, th are thriving, and the waterways are clean. Regenerative organic agriculture, which is led by Patagonia Provisions and the Rodale Institute, is the next phase of food in the world. And I just heard today from the Rodale Institute, which I sit on the board, that New Zealand is going to, as a nation, adopt a regenerative organic agricultural system for the entire uh, country, which is impressive. Thank you for that. So I'm bought in. That's something regenerative, organic agriculture. That's great. What tangible things can I do to support this movement? Are there organizations I can support? What, what could I do? 
follow the work of the Rodale Institute. They're at the leading edge of this support brands like Patagonia Provisions, look for the new ROC label, which mm-hmm. is similar to the uh, USDA organic label, but this is the next phase and you'll start to see it. It's very early. It's, it was only launched about three weeks ago. So this is hot off the press. And, and listen, now that you heard it, listen, uh, go see uh, Kiss the Ground in September. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a film uh, about soil health and regenerative uh, ag- ag- organic agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just familiarize yourself with it. Support uh, Air One Market if you have access to one and support mm-hmm. local farmers and start to ask them about their farming practices. Yeah. Check out Alegria Pharmacy down in Orange County. Mm-hmm. Alegria Fresh, check uh, Eric Cutter out and... He's, he's a brilliant mind. Uh, do you mind if we do some rapid questions before we complete our call? Let's go for it. Awesome. What's your definition of purpose? That which you would do for free and makes a profound impact in some area that, that you feel intensely passionate about. Thank you. You haven't had money and then now you have money. What's your definition of wealth? Freedom of choice, but I'm going to use a longer form if you don't mind, if we have time. Uh, in college, uh, a professor was asked, what's your definition of success? And he answered this way. He said, to be fully engaged in a career that is intellectually and and spiritually uh, rewarding, but affords you with the resources to sit down to a well-prepared meal, uh, a a fine bottle of wine with the uh, company of your choice on a daily basis, that's success. And I think that simplicity uh, always resonated with me. Beautiful. I love that. In the last few years, what new belief, behavior, or habit have really improved your life? Uh, journaling. Historically, I internalize, so I'm not one to vent or express myself. And and I started journaling as I was going through the transition from tender grains into my new life. And, and just that mind dump out on whether it's digital paper or the real thing with pen and paper, to just say it and get it out on paper is important. Mm. And sometimes that's gratitude and sometimes that's uh, just mind up of fear and frustration and, and stuff that you're working through. So is it more like morn, morning page-esque? You just free write X number of pages per day? No, it's, uh, it's a little bit like ayahuasca. It's as needed. So I don't write, I don't journal every day, but I journal when I feel that I'm internalizing or I need to express myself and, and and need that sort of safe container, which is the journal. Beautiful. As a follow-up question there, we all experience different identity shifts in our life. In the last two years, you shifted your identity from, you know, founder operator to now advisor slash chairman. Do you experience any kind of cocooning of 
the caterpillar to the butterfly. They call that the dark night of the soul esque type of transition. It was it was not an elegant uh, transition. It, it was very difficult because I had this deep identity with tender greens, and even over the last two hours, we've been there's a lot of tender greens references as part of who I am. But finding my way to who I would be moving forward and creating an identity around that was clunky. Much in the same way that I, I can imagine a band. And I'm not making this comparison, but I'm just using it as a relatable example. Imagine, uh, you know, Paul McCartney, for example, always uh, being attached to the Beatles, but really wanting to go off and do, now do his solo work. And and he can never get away from that which made him famous and afforded him with a lot of freedoms. But he, he can also be restricted. Finding your way into an elegant next identity without losing touch with where you came from is it's a tough transition because there's a lot of loss in moving away from the old one and fear that you're not going to find an equal identity on the other side. So it's a tough one. So knowing what you know now, what would you say to the Eric younger version two years ago, knowing everything that you know now, having figured out maybe partially, maybe completely what, what you figure out, what would you say to Eric two years ago, who is experiencing the darkness of the soul, the identity crises, the, the inelegance of the emotions and the thoughts of who am I really, right? All of that. What would you say to that younger Eric? I probably would have, I, I probably could have used a few more ayahuasca journeys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Awesome. Um, for sure. Maybe a very intentional trip back to the Himalayas or somewhere like that for a month. Just a, a, a break point where everything stops and you're unavailable so that when you come out back fresh and can re-engage um, on your terms versus running out these commitments, these old commitments while trying to navigate life forward. So I could have used a, yeah, a, a half time, like mm. it's just a, a timeout. And I, I don't think I fully afforded myself with that, mm. which made it clunkier. Last question, Eric, what impact you want to make in the world using food as the vehicle for good? I want to continue to support a resilient supply chain food system that is additive to the planet, not destructive. I want to create food experiences and, and food relationships for people that are filled with joy and, and opportunities to be healthy versus sadness and, and sickness. And I want to see us get back to gathering again uh, mm. and use the table and food as a means to bridge the gaps that are growing in this tribal society that we now live. Mm. Thank you. I want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Eric, for really bringing who you are. You know, we, we really took a two hour journey together, right? You share with us part of who you are generously, your purpose, your way of being, why you want to 
uh, use food as a vehicle to make a positive difference in the world. You taught me how to transform my relationship from just using food as a as fuel, rather actually really use food as a path for new adventures and new discoveries. And we had talked about the different ways of mental models, how you actually formulate the tender green concept from the purpose forming, from the partner choosing, from the culture, from setting the visions to anyways. So <laughs> you also very generous in really sharing with us your mental model around how you make that transition from tender green to now what's moving ahead, the infrastructure of food and, and, and using food as a way to bring people together back again. So you've been so generous. Thank you so much for being here on Noble Warrior. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. <laughs>